Dr. Teresa Canada is a professor of education here at Westcon. When she was in elementary school in the 1960s, she was given an opportunity to help integrate New York City public schools. She jumped at it. And now she has published a book that tells about the first attempt at school desegregation in the city and how it affected the lives of seven African-American students in those classes. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and Dr. Canada is our guest today on WCSU 411. So, Dr. Canada, thanks for joining us today on WCSU 411. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate it. And you are going to tell us some about uh, the book, which is based on some of your childhood education. Correct, 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 correct. It's, it's a book about the experience of desegregation in New York City public schools and um, the stories of narratives of seven of the women who've gone, who went through that particular experience. So that's basically what I want to talk about today. Yeah, when you were in something like sixth grade? Or no, no, home? younger, younger, mm. like, you know, like early childhood situation. My focus, of course, research is in early childhood education, and this book basically kind of coalesces some of my research as well. Mm-hmm. So you were, you lived through it. You were in this, living in the city with your parents, yes. and you became, you were selected for this experiment, right? Yes, yes, yes. Not un- un- unknowingly, um, at the time, I didn't, I was unaware of the fact that it was an experiment. Hmm. Um, and I'm not even sure if my, my parents knew it was an experiment. Um, it's just that the focus was making sure that this was an opportunity that was going to enhance my educational background. So, of course, my, my parents were 100% behind it, apparently. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone through that. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity was to move from wherever school you were going to into this other school, which as, as part of a desegregation project, right? Yes, apparently it was. Um, but the concept, I think, going back on it, it was just that um, the test we were tested, quote unquote, for music I was tested for music. Hmm. Now, there were other people who may have been tested for art, but I was definitely tested for music. Um, and that was really what we were informed, you know, that you're going to have tests and you're going to, you know, see about your musical acumen. And that would determine your ability to be accepted into this new special program at this particular school. And that's really how it started. Um, interesting enough, you know, I had, but prior to this experience, we were playing. My sister, my older sister, and I both were playing the piano. We would have private lessons, piano lessons, growing up, and so I already had some, you know, access to musical um, instruments and that that kind of experience, the recitals and all that stuff. So that was not that was not unfamiliar to me. But what was interesting is that I was unaware of the fact that part of this process included a music test. Hmm. And but you passed it. Obviously, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Now, 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 I don't know if everyone who took this test had had musical backgrounds. I'm unsh- I'm sure I'm unsure of that. I'm not, I'm familiar with that. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I did have, and so even if I didn't have it, maybe I still would have passed it anyway. Right. But I'm just saying to you that it just so happens that I did have some musical background training um, already in the piano. So, you know, that's but where we were. What they didn't tell you was that they were. The project really was about desegregation, right? Yes, it Moving was. some African American children into a basically all white school. Is well, that basically, right? the goal was to try at that time. If you think about New York City schools, particularly, uh, a heavy, heavy people were basically um, attending schools in their neighborhoods. 
Um, and in my neighborhood, mostly black and Puerto Rican children mm -hmm. as a whole. So they were trying to get more, you know, black and brown children to attend this particular school, which is a predominantly white community and predominantly white school as a, you know, as a whole. So I think that in itself was very significant. And this particular school that, that I, I attended was, in fact, one of the elite schools in New York City public schools and still is. Mm. And still is interesting. And still is. Do they still call it a silk stocking school? No, I call it. Oh, okay. Silk I thought it was known as that at publicly. It's known publicly as uh, the name of the school is you know uh, Lily D. Uh, D. Blake School, mm -hmm. um, but it's a public school that currently still exists in New York City. Um, it hasn't changed its name, and it hasn't changed its location. So it's in the same location, mm -hmm. um, and it's still one of the elite public schools in the New York City school system. And uh, it's also called PS6, Yes, right? it is. And you called it, in your book, it's called Desegregation of the New York City Schools, and you refer to the Silk Stocking Sisters, right? Yes. Um, I identify the seven women who are part of the narratives in the book. I identify them as the Silk Stocking Sisters, mm -hmm. um, particularly in particular because of the fact that they attended a school in the Silk Stocking District, which was identified at that particular neighborhood mm -hmm. as considered the Silk Stocking District. And um, the, the women, of course, are women of color, specifically black and brown women. And I identify them as sisters. Mm -hmm. We were all, you know, sisters. They were sisters. So that's why I came up with the concept and the title of the story of Silk Stocking Sisters. The Silk Stocking District refers to a high-end fashion kind of thing because uh, silk stockings were expensive. A lot of women didn't wear them. They couldn't afford them. They couldn't afford them. Yes, but if you could, you wore you have bought silk stockings, and that was the shishi kind of uh, thing, right? For that during that period of time, in the you know, 1800s. I mean, if you think about the neighborhood and the people who basically lived in the neighborhood were people like the Car you know the Carnegies. I mean, this mm -hmm. was the kind of neighborhood where these people lived, and basically that was identified as a silk stocking district. Mm -hmm. District. If you go back to the history within the New York City. Uh, neighborhoods. This was identified um, the Upper West, you know, the Upper West Side, basically. And this particular community was identified as the Silk Stocking District. If you do the research. And how did you? When did you realize then that you were part of a an experiment? To, uh... It it wasn't until I'll be honest with you. When I was young, I didn't understand that. I just knew that I was going to this different school, um, and um, I, you know, thinking back on it, I just know that it was. Unusual because I didn't know anyone else. I mean, there were other people who did eventually come to the school, other black and Puerto Rican children who did come to the school, but it wasn't based upon how I was admitted to the school. Um, they didn't take a special test to come. Mm -hmm. They actually were coming by school buses, the yellow school buses. I took the regular bus. I just happened to be, you know, and there are other students who also attend the school who were a little further out. They also took the regular public buses in, the, in New York City, um, transit authorities buses. Mm -hmm. So for me, I didn't realize really until I was in junior high school, that this was something that was not typical. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the same experience some other people had in that process. I know there were probably other schools that really um, had tried to do this whole desegregation piece because it basically the desegregation process in New York City really didn't come about until like 1957 of course, before my time, but I'm just mm -hmm. saying 1957 from doing the research, it's when they started thinking about doing something. Um, and I think basically what happened is that the school district, um, I'll go back and make a reference from from my book, if mm -hmm. I may. Please. Um, 
1954 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision can be considered the catalyst behind the aggressive move to desegregate the New York City public schools. In 1954, the Urban League of Greater New York asked Dr. Kenneth B. Clark to prepare a position paper on the problems of de facto desegregation in the New York City public schools. In his paper, Dr. Clark stated that, quote, de facto segregation was on the increase in New York City's public schools and the quality of education the children in segregated schools received was continually deteriorating, end of quote. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying that um, there was, and so basically as a result of this position paper, the New York City schools decided to come up with a committee, a committee on integration it was called, to try to find ways to desegregate situation because they were they basically, as I said before, de facto segregation made it so that people lived in the community neighborhoods and therefore the children attended the schools in those neighborhoods. But interesting enough, because of the you know migration from the South and many people coming from the mainland of Puerto Rico, basically the schools within those districts where people were coming and living were overcrowded. Mm. And um, that's why there was a need to think about where can the places be that students can go to. So some of the other schools, and I talk about this in the book, that in the schools, like, for example, in the Silk Stockings District, many parents, and especially in the 60s, started moving out to the suburbs. They were leaving the city. And so basically some of those public schools that were in some of those districts were losing enrollments. And I think that was also um, an incentive to also hmm. do this, let's see who we can bring in. Um, and I think that was the key to try to integrate these schools because it was extremely, extremely, it was either mostly all white schools. And it was just really a huge contrast between what was happening in certain school districts as opposed to other school districts. Um, and I think that was really the stimulus that got it started. Do you remember the difference between the school you left and the school, the PS6 that you uh, came to? Oh, yes, in terms of the, now I'll have to say this, um, in terms of the kinds of physical, the school was a beautiful school. I mean, structurally, architecturally, beautiful school. I mean, I happen to have, I like old buildings. I like antique things. So to me, I had an appreciation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was no real gym. There was the, the, the lunch room was, the, was basically converted to like the gym. Mm -hmm. And um, when it was nice outside, we'd go out in a little small playground outside. Otherwise, there was no real major large environments. There was no, for example, we had the classrooms, and that was it. Whereas in, the, in my new school, um, you had the, you had a cooking, you had mm. cooking room. You had an auditorium. You had a room where you had the music classes. You had a, a gymnasium. So you had and a larger you know, yard to play in. So you had a variety of, of amenities that you didn't have at my previous mm. school. But in terms of the teaching staff, there, of course, the majority of the teachers in the school that I left had predominantly black teachers. Mm. And they were strong, very adamant about education, very supportive of the students. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that the teacher that I had spoke to my parents. Uh, I know that she spoke to my mom, for sure, about this opportunity. Um, did I know about it? Of course, I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the kinds of opportunities, not just academically, um, but also in terms of the non, you know, the non-academic kinds of activity that took place at my new school would not have taken place had I stayed at my previous school. Um, the caliber of, I mean, even the structure, the, the desks, the, the, the books, the, the resources that were available were 
exponentially better at it than a new school. So I'm just saying as a whole, that was a key aspect. That, but the thing is, one of the, as I go back again, is the fact that I was going to be a music person. So I had to select a musical instrument and um, at the new school, whereas in the previous school, I think that we have like, um, I don't even know what's, a little, I can't remember the name of the instrument, something, but it wasn't, there was no music class. Mm -hmm. There was no actual rental of music instru musical instruments. And, um, but in the new school, I played the violin. I, I was able to rent a violin from the school system. So that was not an option in my previous school. And I loved that violin every day, mm -hmm. going back and forth um, home. So um, I think if you think about the extracurricular kinds of activities, the school plays were dynamic plays. I mean, really theoretical, you know, uh, kinds of, you know, extraordinary theological, uh, the, the, um, the theater kinds of singing, the chorus. Everything was just so grand on a, on a top notch scale that it was unbelievable. I mean, and people knew this was a very big deal mm -hmm. in this community. Um, and I just think that you think about the kinds of exposure, and of course, because of the neighborhood, we were around Museum Row. Mm -hmm. I mean, every museum, we, like, we would take like, weekly visits to the museum, to the Met. And so between the Met and the Guggenheim, so all the museums are right there at the fingertips for students. So you have those, those options, field trips. Um, it was very varied and very um, inclusive kinds of experience where everyone ha had the opportunity to partake. Um, which wasn't necessarily an option in my previous school. Mm -mm. Not at all. No, okay. that's uh, what segregation is all about, right? Is Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. So um, it was a very interesting time, of course, and it wasn't, all, um, it wasn't all that nice because, you know, I talk about, you know, some of the women talk about the experiences that they, they had um, in the classrooms by the teachers in the new school as opposed to the other schools that they came from. Not everyone came from the school that I attended. They came from different schools. So the experiences were very different. Um, but at the same time, it was very... It was very similar. It was very similar. We all had similar experiences in the new school. Mm -hmm. um, but we all had, we, we all felt that the education was top-notch, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's no question. And the exposure. But we also talked about the economic differences, differences that took place between the neighbors that we'd come out of and the neighbors we were going into. Very, very sharp economic differences. Um, and you could see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so it wasn't something that you know, was hidden. Whereas in the previous neighborhoods, the kind of nurturing that existed did not exist at the new school. Um, and that was very, very, very obvious to all of us. Um, I think that, um, and that's important because I talk about the psychological, emotional impact of this experience of desegregation as a whole, which people don't really talk about. Um, you know, yes, it's great, but the, the, some of the trauma that, that took place that people experienced uh, due to this experience, they never got over it. And um, that's something people need to think about in terms of if you're going to provide opportunities for people to come into different settings, you need to prepare them for what they're coming into and have supportive networks within the system to be able to give them an opportunity to excel academically. Because oftentimes when they have that trauma, they don't excel. And this was a situation where the, everybody was saying, yes, let's do this, right? It wasn't a uh, forced segregation as we've seen in U.S. history, like in Boston, where people are pelting the school buses, et cetera. Uh, this was something where everybody wanted to do it, right? And well, it was still trauma. And there's trauma. still trauma. Still trauma. It's still trauma. Exactly. Um, now, not, not everybody was happy about this mm -hmm. because um, the, apparently from doing my research, 
the school district decided to change the zoning mm. for this particular school, which means that there were people who were at one point within the zone to attend uh, PS6, and then as a result, the rezoning, they were no longer able to attend. So there were some types of demonstrations that took place. I don't recall. Maybe it was maybe it was right before me. I don't remember, but I, I know that it's discussed in the book about the kinds of demonstrations that took place because parents were, some of the parents in the neighborhood were very upset as if to say, oh, well, these students are taking spots that people within the zone would have normally attended. Um, but I, as I mentioned before, it was two, there was a two type of experiments that took place. Really just one. The experiment that, that I went through was very different because there were other students who came in later on who were bused into the community. Um, and they were mostly from, I think, the east side of, of the east, still east side of, of, of Manhattan, but they were still bussed in on yellow school buses. And that was not the case for me mm-hmm. and many of the women who were, who were discussing the issue in the book. Um, but the people, different. you and the women in your classes, were um, still experienced some trauma, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question. Teachers wouldn't call on you. Mm. They, they were calling you, but they were calling you when you didn't know have the answer. So there were situations where, and I don't, you know, thinking back as a child, that's that's very hurtful, and it can it can traumatize you that you may not want to ever learn or do anything else. But fortunately, majority of us were able to still, you know, get through this experience and still, you know, still thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was challenging. And what helped us to thrive was the support from our parents, the communities in which we came from, and in many cases, the the the, the, the blood churches. So um, that was very very important. Um, the communities that we came from were supportive because they knew that we were having an opportunity that not everyone had an opportunity to do. And they supported us, and they gave us encouragement. Keep it up. Have a great day. You're going to do it. You know, you're going to do well. Um, even to the fact that, for example, I mentioned before that I played the violin, and I was very petite. Um, not that I'm much taller now, but <laughs> still, I'm just saying, I had this violin, and I was waiting for the public bus, and sometimes I would just, you know, just and have a book bag on the other hand, mm. And that's before backpacks came out. So it was very challenging. And then I had, there's a neighbor who lived in our, in our building who would stand with me and wait with me with the bus to mm. make sure I was okay to get on the bus or make sure I wasn't going to, you know, fall getting up the steps to get on the bus. So those kinds of things where I said about community people were supportive. That That's an indication of how they wanted to encourage us to, you know, just keep going and, you know, don't give up. Um, and the reason why I mentioned this, not, not that I talk about this, but I'll just mention this. There are narratives of seven black women, mm-hmm. okay? There's no narrative of, of men, okay? And the reason is because many of the young, you know, the young men who did come did not stay, hmm. okay? I think there's, there's, that's another book probably, but hmm. I'm just saying as a whole, there was a very different perspective, and there were less um, young black men who were coming in the first place. But they did not stay. They did not remain in the school. Um, maybe one, or, maybe one or two stayed. I, from what I understand, I know there was one who stayed that I knew of. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the, 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 the guys did not stay. They left. They went back to the, either to the regular school they came from, or they went to a private school. I'm not really sure the dynamics. But still, it, that was a real interesting contrast. The, the, the young girls somehow were able to stay there, thrive, survive, and thrive beyond that experience and go on to the middle, you know, junior high school at the time, which was just called, and, of course, high school, so, and then into college. So um, I just say that because that's another issue that needs to be addressed. So it means what's happening in our public schools that, and we talk about how black males don't make it through. 
um, or there's a different reaction or different treatment of black males in schools as opposed to black females. So I don't know if that's a, it's a gender issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and we're talking about trying to get more black male, black and Latino male uh, teachers in the classroom. But it starts at an early age. If you're not able to keep them and maintain them at in, in kindergarten, first, second, third, they're not going to make it through mid, uh, the rest of elementary. They're not going to make it through junior high school. They're going to make it right now middle school, and then they're going to make it through high school, and they're definitely not going to make it to college. Mm -hmm. So that's a challenge that the system has to go back and address because there are quality students that just aren't able to get through the system. So this book talks about some of the challenges that take place and how students are treated when they're in the classrooms, um, the support they're getting, um, the emotional support, where it comes from. It's not just do well in your classes. I mean, many of us did do well in our classes, but not everyone is able to do that. Um, but part of the, the incentive, I know in my case, was that I had one really close friend that I spoke to almost every night. I would call on the phone almost every night. And my mother would listen to the conversations. Well, it wasn't something we were talking about, like what was happening in school or what was the class like? Did you do the homework? How did that assignment go? And things like that, um, which was very similar to what we call cohorts now when you have doctoral students and cohorts. Well, they, we, we, we were cohorts of, of young people, you know, supporting each other for what we were going through. Mm -hmm. And um, that allowed us, I know for my, in my case, this one friend allowed me to be able to come back to school every day, knowing she's going to be there to support me, to encourage me, to be my buddy, to know what I was going through, what she was going through, and we're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So that is so important to young people, I think, in any situation um, that can be transferred to the current situation. You, you need to have some support networks from your uh, fellow students, you need to have some support from the teachers that teach you, the administrations that are there in terms of supportive policies and, and structures and guidelines that take place. That's in order for, to enhance the education. That's the key is the education here. And I don't know if within our society that really that concerned about that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And now with the challenges that are taking place in our school systems throughout the country, that's very important. We have to really address that. Was it... Uh uncomfortable or did you feel separate uh, merely because you were an African-American child in a all-white school with just a few other uh, black students there? Or was it the way you were treated that made you realize that there was a um, uh, difference in students' or teachers' eyes? Or Well, I'll tell you. The reason why I say this is because we were treated in some cases different. Mm -hmm. We were treated, as I mentioned before. I know um, in my first classroom, this is why I said my, my good friend, who we're still friends to this day, um, there, there were situations where the teacher wouldn't call on you. I mean, you'd have your hand raised to ask the question. The teacher would ignore you. And then when you didn't have your hand raised, she'd call on you. Because obviously she knew you, if you knew the answer, you'd raise your hand. And if you didn't know the answer, you wouldn't raise your hand. But interesting enough, even at that young age, my friend and I, we decided we were going to do something different. We wouldn't raise our hand for the answers we did know, and we would raise our hands for the answers we didn't know. <laughs> so it, and then when finally she called on us, and we had the answer. She was shocked. Um, and I think that's, we as, a young, as young children, we had to figure out little things like that to be able to, to cope because what was happening is that when she would call on us and we didn't have the answer, the impression of the other students was that, well, they're not competent. Um, they're not smart. They don't have the answers. So you have the stereotype that's developing that 
needed to go away. So my friend and I, we figured out, okay, let's do this. We're not going to raise our hand when we know the answer. And we raise our answer. And raise our hands, we'll have the, we don't have the answer. She won't call us. So when she realized that's what we did, and that was when she was stunned, that's when she decided, okay, I'll just let, you know, call on them when they have the answer. So after a while, she just went back, and she realized that wasn't working anymore. So that was an experience that took place. Um, we were situated in a classroom um, where... I think it was interesting because you're young. Sometimes the other kids don't really feel as if, oh, we're okay um, because we had parties. Um, mm -hmm. I had no, I had a party. And I'm just thinking, friends, we were invited to parties. Um, and so uh, my dad was a des designated driver because we always had a car. And we, my, mother, my dad would pick up, you know, you know, the other children, you know, other girls who, whose parents would allow them to go to the parties because not all of them did attend. And my dad would drop us off and come pick us up and drive everyone home, and we'd go home. And that was a routine. So we were invited to parties. And um, I don't remember. I know I had a party, and some, some of the white students did come to my party. But it was a challenge because this was something different. This was something new. And I don't know if many people were familiar with this. And oftentimes when you have these parties, parents come. Now, neither of my parents could come and sit at the parties like some of the other parents. Um, but... When I had my party, the parents came and they and they came and they sat in the kitchen with my mom, talking, eating, you know, whatever food they had, and chit chatting, which was very, very unusual for mm -hmm. that period of time, especially for this particular school. And I think that that's so important in our society. People get need to get to know each other. People need to know about different ways. We have more, we're more alike than we are different. Mm -hmm. And I think until people realize that we're going to have some issues and we want to make sure that all children have an opportunity to excel, to become the best they can be. And unless we have parents who are involved, and I talked about my research about parents know what sometimes what some teachers don't know, mm -hmm. and having parents, communities, and schools and systems, school systems, to be able to implement some policies and practices that are going to enhance all of us being able to provide the best opportunity for all children whether they speak a different language, whether they come from a, a low socioeconomic status, all that's very important to be able to enhance the education for all children. Do you think that you're an education professor? Uh, are the things that you just talked about uh, able to be applied in a place like New York City still, which seems so huge and uncontrollable versus someplace like, say, Danbury or Brookfield, where, uh, you know, it's a little bit more, it seems like it might be a little bit easier to get your hands around and um, make those changes. Oh, yeah. Well, New York City is dealing with that right now. Um, and, um, and there's some, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I've been watching the news about what's happening uh, where parents are now protesting because apparently the new superintendent, new, new chancellor of the schools in New York City is, is his concern, one of his focus of his administration, he's new in the system, is to have more integration of schools. And he's about to do some of that. He would, it would be good if he could read my book. Mm. He'd learn something about some of the policies and things that I talk about in terms of some of the things that can take place or some of the issues that they need to look at. Um, and that would be helpful to be able to say, okay, this took place, you know, you know, back in, you know, in the early in the, in the, you know, mid '60s. So what can you do now that you don't recreate the same mistakes you made in the '60s? And make it different now, okay? Mm -hmm. Because our society is going to continue to be more diverse. So you can't, you know, and people are moving in different neighborhoods. I mean, the gentrification that's happening in, in, in Harlem is a perfect example. Um, and I think that if you provide opportunities for people, they're going to be able to come. They're going to be able to do the best they can. Um, 
we still have some issues with housing, okay? Mm -hmm. And that may not be resolved anytime soon. But at the same time, I think that um, there, because New York City has the vast transit system, you have subways, you have public buses, and, this, and people can be accessible, it's, you know, schools are accessible. It's different than, say, maybe having to worry about a yellow school bus because people can get on the subways. Of course, at a young age, that's more challenging, but at the same time, it gives people different options as opposed to some place like Danbury, mm -hmm. where it's, you know, and I think that it's, it can be, it can work. It's just that people have to really be in. They have to buy into the concept of what is it that we're trying to do, okay? It's not like taking away from someone else. It's enhancing for everyone, because I think that when you have people from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, in the same environment, they learn from each other, okay? It's the, instead of everyone be, being um, homogeneous in their settings, I think heterogeneous settings can be much more enhancing for the education and the academic achievement for all children. Mm -hmm. So the, as you said, the research you have done in your uh, tenure as a professor, as well, along with teaching students, is uh, along these lines, right? So this book really fits into your whole life—not whole, your life experience, early life experience—fits into your academic research. Yes, it leads right into it. It's, it's interesting when I not understand. You know, I think my experience going through this um, as a young child had a lot to do with me selecting my career. Um, we talk about that in the book. Some of the people asked, did it have anything to do with your career choice? Mm. And for many people, they didn't think it did. And I'm thinking back now. Now, mind you, my interest, of course, leads to early childhood education. And um, I, as, you, as you know from, from previous experience and from my, my previous podcast, I did talk about my research in early childhood education in, in terms of quality care for, for um, children. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so crucial because if you don't start in the beginning, it's hard to make up for it later on. Um, and I think that this book kind of confirms what I say in my research that, you know, and also important, important impact of parents' involvement. In this book, every woman who is interviewed talks about the role of their parents, every single one. We have this um, stereotype that parents of color aren't involved, aren't interested, don't know, you know, maybe they don't know everything about the system, but they are interested in having the best opportunities for their children. That was crucial. And they did whatever they could do. For example, you know, one student talked about um, how um, her father basically came into the school and, you know, they had a question about whether or not, you know, how a person had done well. A parent came because the parent, the parent, the, the student was out for sick, was out sick, sick leave or something. And they came back to school and they, the student had missed a particular lesson in math. And the parent helped the student at home. But when the student came back to the classroom, they learned from the, the parent taught them. So when they get to school, the, the, the teacher um, ostracized the student because the student didn't do it the way that she taught them. So those are things that we talk about. But the parents showed an interest in making sure that that child still had the information. So when they went back to school, they weren't behind. But that was the best they could do. Um, so it goes back, again, about the importance of parent involvement. Okay, Maybe these parents couldn't come to every PTA meeting, or maybe they couldn't come to every single play. But when most things were in the evenings, parents were there for the plays. They were there for the, the, the course uh, recitals. They were there. I know my family came, and, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, you have a black family. Everybody, aunt, grandma, everyone comes. <laughs> so um, that really is, you know, is, 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 you know, to support, you know, to support us. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's very important. I think also understanding different cultural aspects helps school systems as well. 
you know, where um, a parent, maybe, maybe uh, a white student's parent may not come, but they may send one parent may come. And then whereas in a, in a, in a Latino family, you've got the five kids, you've got, you know, you've got the, the, the mother may be coming with the five kids, okay? So, you know, it's a different perspective. So understanding that you need to provide kinds of opportunities that will allow parents to be involved in their children's education, not just within the classroom, but also the extracurricular activities that take place outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Did you tell your parents about this teacher who wouldn't call on you when you had your no, hand raised? No, absolutely not. Mm. Absolutely not. And I think had I said that, I, I, I'm pretty sure my mom would have pulled me out of the school. Mm. Okay. And that's why I said it was so significant, the relationship with my friends at the school. We decided we were going to make it. We were going to get through this. We were going to get through this together. And we devised the way in which we were able to cope. And unfortunately, some people aren't able to do that. And so we started at an early age. So now, at this age, of course, I can do it all, right? No, I'm just kidding. But I'm just <laughs> saying um, it helps to prepare you for what life is like later on. Nothing's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to be exact. And you're going to come across different um, issues as you grow up. And I think that that experience was showing how we're able to adapt, how we're able to process, think critically at an early age, which is not typical. And I didn't understand at the time how we figured that out, but we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a hidden kind of thing. We figured we're going to do this, okay? It wasn't like pre-planned. It, we, we just realized, why isn't she call, not calling on us? And um, I don't know what took place in other classrooms. We all were not in the same classroom. We were all in different classes, in different, in fact, different age groups of the women who were interviewed in different classes, different grade levels. So we're different, you know, you have a different perspective here. But at the same time, there were other kinds of incidents that took place, for example, in terms of the playground kinds of activities. Um, <laughs> you know, some people wouldn't play with us in the playground. Um, and if a person who, a white student wanted to play, the other white students ostracized that student not to play with us. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those kinds of things that you learned at an early age. Well, it had nothing to do with, it's just basically because of what we looked like. Oh, interesting. But at the same time, um, they, they, you know, it's like we, th- we talk about in adolescence where you have the peer group that's very important. Well, it's, even at an early age, sometimes children have to go along with what their friends say. Um, and that's what took place sometimes. But there are other students who were like, I don't care, I'm going to play. This is my friend. But that was one of the rarities, okay? Um, so I'm just saying, even inside of, you know, you had teachers who, for example, I had a wonderful sixth grade teacher. There's no question. I mean, she was a jazzy person. I mean, jazzy, jazzy. I, we call her jazz. I call her jazzy. She was a just jazzy person. Um, and I think she, she was very supportive of me. And to me, that was very important. Um, and it allowed me to say, feel good about me. You know, self-efficacy and, um, you know, self-esteem is so important at a young age. Mm. And to me, and, the, you know, my other students would say, oh, you're the teacher's pet. I probably was. But it wasn't about, um, it wasn't like, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. But I just know, I was very, believe it or not, I was a very quiet child. <laughs> As a child, I was very quiet. I did not really speak up, Paul, until I became a senior in high school. Mm even though I was very introspective most of my life. Um, but I also thought and I processed and I shared it with individual students. Um, but in terms of working with, you know, leadership skills that I developed over the years, I think a lot of it started from this early age when I started in the school mm-hmm. because I became 
um, like the person, like the go-to person. And I was, I guess, comprehensive about what to do and, okay, let's do this. And, you know, but on a mild-mannered kind of way, um, I think that really started coming out when I was in the sixth grade. And um, I became, I think I had an office in the, in the classroom or something, you know, class president or something like that is in, in, you know, sixth grade. I think that's what it is. I can't remember. I have to ask my friends. Maybe they still remember. But still, I'm thinking that was so important, developing leadership skills. But there were teachers who supported that. Not, not all teachers were bad, but I'm just saying the first teacher that I had in that school was not was a very challenging situation mm. for many of us, and that's why I think there was a young black guy in the class who didn't come back. I think I don't even know if he lasted the whole year. No, he didn't last the entire year. He lasted maybe that f- until December, mm-hmm. maybe until December, and then he disappeared. Um, but I think the experiences that took place really had a lot to determine whether or not a person was able to make it through. So I, I talk about in the book that there were experiences that took place in desegregation in the South that was even worse in the North. Okay, worse that no one really talked about. Um, so I have written the book because they need to hear this experience took place. And this was a very, this was an intentional, I believe, intentional desegregation process. This was an unintentional process. Mm-hmm. They want to see, and also I have to say that, you know, which there are some challenges that I have to say here, that the students who left their schools, like I left my school and some of the other people left their schools, we were the cream of the crop of our schools, mm-hmm. okay? We were the top grade, you know, we, we, we had high reading levels, we had high math levels, um, and they used our mis- musical background as the reason for it was to go, I think. But I believe that everyone who attended this new school definitely had, we were high achievers to begin with. Um, and I don't think they accepted anyone in the school who didn't have a certain, I mean, I, I know in third grade, I know in third grade I was reading the eighth grade reading mm-hmm. level. I know that. I, I found that out. Okay. Um, and I think that was important to them, that they brought students in who they felt would have opportunity. Now, the black teachers at the school, we left. And they were all engaged in the process of providing an opportunity for us who were stellar students to have an opportunity to excel. And that was the, I think that was the main reason that the teachers said, but at the same time, they felt that we would be able to, um, to achieve in the setting. They, they said we came from, we had parents who were supportive. That was important that we had parents who were supportive. We had, we were academically, academically high achievers, um, they felt we had the stamina in which to, to be able to go into this environment mm-hmm. and to be able to be successful. And I think they chose us um, from our previous, previous schools to come and said, we're going to pick these students. And not everyone who had high grades attended the school, okay? Some of them stayed at the, their school because the parents felt they didn't want their children to be exposed to go through what we went through. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, okay? As a matter of fact, um, thinking back on it, there was a young st- student in my class who, um, after, you know, the Hunter, Hunter had a program when you left sixth grade, you go to Hunter High School from seventh grade to twelfth grade. Mm-hmm. And I didn't attend Hunter, but I attended the local junior high school in the, in the community from, from PS6. But there was a young lady who was in my third grade, I think she was in my second grade class, I think, and she ended up going to Hunter, okay? So she was a high achiever, but her grandmother, she, her mother, her grandmother was raising her. Her grandmother didn't want her to go to this mm. new school. She felt it was too difficult for her to travel too far away from home, which was just, you know, it was just, you know, you know, it was schlep to get there. I'm mm-hmm. telling you. So, but her mother, her grandmother said no, and I ended up seeing her later in the community, and she said the reason why her grandmother didn't want to go, but she still was an academic achiever because she didn't go to Hunter as a seventh grader, and that was, a, was still a stellar program to go through for, for young people. So I'm just saying it just depended, but many of the students, students who left these schools, we were the top students at those schools. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, what happens to those schools um, when we all leave? And that's another issue that needs to be addressed. You know, 
do, do we have to leave our community schools? So this is something that came out of the book in order to go to a better environment. If, in fact, one of the questions that was asked when I interviewed these women is, would you have stayed in your community if you had the similar kinds of exposure and academic achievement and extracurricular activities in your school that you left? And many of them said yes. Mm -hmm. Many of them said yes. And I understand why. Um, but at the same time, that wasn't an option. That was not an option. Right. So, you know, the option was take this risk and go to this institution, go to another situation and go to another school and, 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 and do the best you can. But the other thing, we were also looked upon as, oh, you've got to make this. You've got to do well. And I think that was a very similar thing that took place with the um, Little Rock Nine. Okay. Little, Rock, Little Rock Nine. Um, and they wanted to have the best students and they felt they were going to be you know, able to achieve. But it's interesting. For the Little Rock Nine students, the majority of those, I think all of those students came from middle class households. Okay, whereas not all the students in my situation mm. came from middle house, middle house high schools. They came from, you know, many of them lower socioeconomic status, and they still were able to achieve. For people who may not have that history, Little Rock was in Arkansas, and uh, the high school was integrated with nine students, black students who were chosen to uh, integrate and was um, not well accepted by the white community. Those kids took a lot of um, hardship with them. Uh, but you're, some of them have come to this to Westcon to talk, and they talked about their parents supporting them and uh, you know helping them decide to do it. They were their parents were in one hundred percent behind them, right. right? The parents were the ones because if you think about it, if we were living in a segregated society. Mm -hmm. Okay, they, and that was in the that was in the fifties. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, segregation in America. Um, it wasn't that long ago, Paul. No, no. So people think it was like eons ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Well, we're still seeing the effects of it. It's still segregated and still having effects, uh, not uh, legal, but uh, societal. Yeah, societal. It's still carrying over. Uh, and, and people think, oh, everything's fine. No, it's not all fine. Mm -hmm. It's not all fine. Even mm -hmm. to this day, it's not all fine. And I think that people you know, tend to forget, you know, it wasn't just, it was just yesterday, really, mm -hmm. that w that basically black and white people consider the same lunch counter, okay? And, I, you know, to think of, say, to such a young person now, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'm saying to you that there are places, I said, I my parents came from segregated environments, and, um, you know, I understood that. And that was in New York. That was they, in New York City, yeah. exactly. So you can imagine what it was like in, in Arkansas mm -hmm. or other some places in the South. So I'm just saying to you, this was an opportunity. And many people, for example, the great migration of, of blacks from the South um, that took place in, I think it was the 40s, started, mm -hmm. I think major ones started in the 40s. Um, of course, there's a, there's a woman who's written a book about that that's well mm -hmm. known. Um, and I, I think that if you understand that, People want a better opportunity for themselves and for their children. And I think that's the American dream, mm -hmm. I believe. Okay, mm -hmm. so why should it be any different for anybody else who wants to come and have a better opportunity? And America's the place in which you can do that. I mean, that's this is like the place where, you know, you best can do that. Right. Um, so we need to provide opportunities so people can be successful in America. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I don't know if people understand that, but this is where we are. Um, and, um, you know, no one should be left out. Mm -hmm. No one. Everyone has. Everyone. I say to my students when they want to become teachers, every child in that classroom has a gift. Every child has a gift. And what you as a future teacher need to understand is that you need to help that child to discover their gift and be able to help them 
to capitalize on that gift and to mold and support them with that gift so they can achieve whatever that gift may be. I mean, that's so important. I mean, everybody has a gift. So, you know, maybe this person doesn't read as well as this person, but there's something else this child can do, okay? Find that, help that child find that gift, okay? I mean, you think about, um, uh, you know, the, the swimmer, um, Michael Phelps, okay? Mm-hmm. He had challenges, I think, growing up and so forth. Um, and somebody could, his mother could just throw him aside, okay, forget it. But she kept working with him, and he became an Olympic swimmer, one of the best in the world, okay? So you think about, well, you know, you know, the thing is, but the thing is also you have to expose children to situations. Had I not been exposed, Paul, mm-hmm. to this environment, I don't think maybe I wouldn't be who I am today, mm-hmm. okay? But I believe the exposure that I received at an early age really made a difference in terms of what I, I felt I was capable of doing and becoming in this society. And I think every child should have that opportunity. Are the other six, was it six other women and you in, in this book? And do they all have uh, positive um, reflections on it? No, absolutely not, Paul. Absolutely not. Uh, no. Some people, you know, felt like it was awful, horrible, and they would not put their child through it, hmm. okay? And many of them didn't. I mean, one woman had a choice of, of allowing her child to go to that school, and she refused hmm. because of her experience. And she, it's still with her to this day, hmm. um, that, that experience. It was so traumatizing. Um, and like I said before, the fact is that the friendships that she had, the, the connection with a fr- specific friend that's been a lifelong friend from that experience, is what that's the only real association she has. Other than that, she would not even put her own child in that experience. And that's why I'm saying, you know, it's, it's challenging. You, you think about what is it that, you know, it's like we want the best for, your, for our children, right? What are you going to, you know, we, are you going to subject your child what you went through? And basically, some, parents, some women said yes. But they would. They have options. They had different options now, as opposed to you know back then they right. didn't have the options. But at the same time, I believe that if it were the same situation, they would have put their child through it. Mm-hmm. Okay, because they want the best for their child. Right. Okay. Simple as that. So the experiences that took place in the north were very similar to the experiences that took place in the south. Okay. I, I just think that people don't understand that there were these kinds of experiences that took place in the North. That's why I wrote the book, because I don't think people talked about it. Mm-mm. All you talk about is what happened in the South and what happened in, you know, the University of Mississippi, what happened in Alabama. You know, that's all we talk about. But this happened in New York City, okay? The greatest city in the world, I have to say. I'm a New York City person. The greatest city in the world. And still there were issues, and still there were concerns. And even to this day, the same concerns that took place then are now taking place in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to learn from our past. And apparently sometimes we don't want to think about that. For example, many many of the um, women in the group, you know, middle class women now or upper middle class women, and they want to shield their children mm-hmm. from some of the things that they may have had growing up. And that's understandable. But at the same time, I'm thinking, look at the experiences that I had that made me look at, you know, I have friends from all walks of life, okay? And I don't think I would have had that mm-hmm. had I not had this experience, okay? Because I have siblings who did not attend the school, who did not have experience. And I see the differences in our lifestyles, and I, you know, that we have. And I'm thinking, I think that this experience made me a different person than my own siblings, even though my parents felt education was crucial. And I know even, you know, the fact that, you know, um, things change because I have younger brothers, and a younger sister, but my point, I'm saying that things have changed, but at the same time, 
my parents wanted the best for all their children. Um, we're, of course, all college educated. We all have at least one. Well, we all have. I have several degrees. Mm-hmm. I have All the girls have two degrees or more. I'm just saying, though, that that was crucial. Education was a crucial piece because it provided an opportunity that if you didn't have an education. Because if you think about it, that the segregated educational system, you didn't have the same supplies, you didn't have... Look, I, like I mentioned before in my previous podcast, I had a cousin who was taught in a one-room one room school, school, schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. And if you could do it then, you can do it now. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, um, the challenge is a little different. We still have challenges in our school systems. Um, and I think if we don't start at an early age, Paul, we're not going to be able to have young people later on in life to say, okay, what can we do? You know, this school-to-prison to pipeline has to stop. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I, I go back now, referencing to the young black males who don't get through this. So where do they end up? Okay, and I'm saying we have. To, I think everyone has value in our society, and we need to start at an early age. Because if you don't start now at this early age, it's more difficult later on. You know, we're going to be paying prices as a society. Right. Okay. So that's my take on this as mm-hmm. a whole. So basically, the, you know, the stories that are talked about here, not everyone was pleased with experience, but I think if they were in our parents' shoes. Probably would do the same thing mm-hmm. because you have to want the best for your children. Right. That, that's that's what it is about. It's like you want to be, you want your children to have a better opportunity than you did. At least that's what my parents were like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, that's what my parents were like. So people can find your book on Amazon. Yes. Have you got any? It, it, is it going in any? You know, brick and mortar bookstores yet? Um, it's available only online. Uh, this case, because it's an academic book. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an academic, so it's an academic press. Uh, Peter Lang Publishing is the it's a publisher for the book, and it's available on Peter Lang's website. It's available on Amazon.com. It's also available on Books a Million. Hmm. So those are the three sites that you can go to to find the book. Um, and um, the only way that it'll be in the actual you know brick and mortar places if I go and I present or I speak or I do a book signing at those particular locations. Um, then it'll probably, like, if I go speak at Barnes & Noble, then they'll have the book, uh, copies of the book sent to the bookstore at that time so they can provide it for people who want to purchase the books and do book signings at mm-hmm. those locations. Um, so hopefully I'll get signed up for some book signings and, and some speaking engagements, um, and then that way I can get some books out in some of the brick-and-mortar places. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the hope. Yes. Okay. And you have a book launch coming up? Yes, I do. I have a book launch scheduled for October 28th, on Sunday, October 28th, um, from 1.30 to 3.30 at a room within the Riverside Church. Um, it's uh, a, it's it's said to be. It's basically there to share pe- with with people my topics about my book, to talk more about what I'm doing, and talk about the issues I bring about in the book, um, and some opportunities that can come about as a result of the things I'm sharing in my book. So it's also a place for people to network and socialize and and get to know me better. I want to make sure there's time that I can speak to everyone. I'll be signing some books. You can still purchase some books, but if you can purchase a book ahead of time, that'll be a lot easier because I'm only going to have a limited number of books available. I'll have some um, door prizes. Um, um, I'll have some, you know, some favors to give people who could attend. So it's like a little mini party celebration. Um, It's been a long time coming Mm -hmm. for the book, Um, so I'm hoping that people will be able to come and share um, their thoughts as well. It's not going to be just one-sided. I want people to come and ask questions. So there will be a question-and-answer process as well during, during the launch. So James Meredith was the person who integrated uh, Mississippi. University of Mississippi. Yes, right? University of Mississippi. University of Mississippi. He had – that was very difficult to – you know, no one wanted – no one wanted him there, basically, right? Correct. He was the only black student at Mississippi, right. and he uh, graduated in three years. He's a um, civil rights icon. 
Yes, he, he was is. shot once while he was marching across the South. Selma, in Selma. Yeah. yeah. And you got him to uh, write a uh, book blurb for you. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He, huh. he, he felt it was very, he said this was experience, you know, this needs to be shared with other people. He was unaware of this himself. And he was able to, I asked him, would he, would he you know, give me, uh, you know, a, you know, re, you know get, give me a little information about, you know, sharing with my, by my book. And he absolutely did. He gave a nice quote. And that quote is available online on the Amazon site. And it's, I think it's also available on the Peter Lang site as well. But basically he shared information. It's a quote. Should I, re, should I read the quote? Please, please, yeah. Okay. Let me read the quote. Um, basically... He's giving, you know, this is the early praises for the book, says, you know, advanced praise for, you know, desegregation in New York City schools. Teresa J. Canada provides an excellent overview of this unknown desegregation experience in the New York City public schools. This book informs us that little black girls in the North were just as courageous as the black children who desegregated schools in the South. The common fact is that these children were willing to do what was necessary to receive a better education. James H. Meredith, civil rights activist and author of the three years in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he'd take my call, but how did you get <laughs> hold of him? Well, it's a long story, Paul. The mm. long story is this. I knew James Meredith, mm. and I, I knew his wife initially. His wife was a, was a teacher in the public school. She, I met her through my neighbor. My neighbor was one of her students, mm. and she used to, she, his wife was a teacher. And that's how I ended up meeting him. And I developed a relationship as a young child with him as a result of my neighbor who was a babysitter for his kids, mm. his young children. So that's and so basically I contacted him, I was able to find him, contact him. I said, Would you mind, you know, I have a book that's coming out. Would you mind taking a look and see what you think? And I would appreciate your thoughts. And he said, you know, uh, you know, he, of course he didn't have to say yes. He took a look and he responded and he you know he said, okay, and he signed off on this. And he said, it's very, very the introduction, he said, very, very, very good introduction. So he liked the fact that I talked about this and the fact that he was unaware of this. And um, that's startling. Um, you know, people always think about the Southern situation. So for him to write that, I, I, I was very pleased about his, his thoughts and, and, I, and his support for this book. That's mm, no, a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. I, I think so, too, um, to have an icon like James Meredith to, to give me, a, a, you know, advanced praise. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think it's a good read. Um, um, it, it's educational, of course, but it's also um, enlightening. I think the narrative brings it to a different perspective because it's a firsthand experience mm-hmm. of the women who experience this. And they, they basically all have different experiences. And I talk about, you know, like I said, each of them were interviewed, um, asked all the same questions. So basically the, the book is a compilation of all the, the comments that were made um, of course, all the names have been changed, and um, uh, but the same point is the stories are very true. Um, and basically, as a summary of the book, we talk about some of the social political aspects that took place and that, that we can talk about now that can be used for education policy um, and gender and women's studies and also education law, believe it or not, because, mm-hmm. you know, we need to look at our laws as we think about, you know, what we need to move forward for this society to move forward. Um, I think we have to address that, especially now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, and that's my concern. Um, are people going to be as open? I mean, this, this, this country as a whole is a diverse country, and it's not going to get less diverse. It's going to get more diverse. Mm-hmm. And we have to find a way to work together to be able to allow everyone to achieve 
in our society because we're suffering. We, they, they don't. You know, I'm thinking about, okay, when I eventually retire, who's going to be behind that? Who's going to handle my, my, my money behind the bank? Who's going to be handling my health care? Who's going to be, you know, the services that we're going to need? We have to have competent people to be able to do that. And if we don't prepare everyone in our society, we're going to have a problem in our society here. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're, This country will lose its, you know, its strength that we currently have. So I, I think that as a whole... Um, the book really describes something that we can look at as a society to say, okay, this is what happened then. What can we do differently now to enhance the situation moving forward? That's why I think that I wrote the before. So tell you about what happened. You know, it's like, it's like the hypothesis. What's the, what's, the, what's the problem? Okay. This is the problem. The problem was the desegregated, you know, was uh, segregated schools. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not just in the South, but in the North. In a major city like New York City. So if the New York City society cannot get a grasp of this who's going to get a grasp mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying mm-hmm. so i think that's what's so so poignant about the book that it talks about a major city in this country like i said the greatest city in the world for me but my point is if you look at the lessons that are being learned from this experience we can make a better country a better city a better state the connecticut would be better the whole country would be better the world would be better mm-hmm. because people in this country don't just stay in new york you know in new york city or stay in connecticut they go around the world they 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 you know for work for other reasons they around the world. So, you know, the world's going to get smaller. Mm-hmm. And we need to be able to find ways that we can enhance our society, not to make it worse. Mm-hmm. So we want everybody listening to buy your book and Absolutely. read it. Absolutely. And if you uh, want to be, think you want to be a teacher, you should come to Westcon and take the classes with Dr. Teresa Canada because she'll be talking about all this stuff in uh, her classes, too. As a matter of fact, Paul, let me just share this. Yeah. I acknowledge my former students in the book hmm. because I used to talk about this, and they said, Dr. Ken, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. I said, really? Yeah, you need to write the book. And I had the thought and the concept of the book way before I came to Westcon, but I didn't think I was going to actually finish it and write it and get it published. But it was really the students in my class when I was talking about, especially in my class when I talk about educational opportunity, Mm -hmm. which I do talk about quite often, Mm -hmm. how important it is, that the students said, well, and I said, well, you know, I had a similar kind of experience. And when I said that, students said, well, Dr. Cannon, you need to write a book. You need to. I said, well, I was have an idea of starting my book. Well, you need to finish it. So I thanked the students who were in my classes in the, the past because they kept me encouraged to get this process moving. And I, I think that I still have more specific information to share now with the students in the classroom now. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so hopefully, you know, students will get the book. They'll come to my class. People will come to WestCon. Um, in our programs, we have excellent education program here at WestCon mm-hmm. and be able to talk and, and, and have classes with people like myself. Right. I love that. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing with us and putting it out today. And um, good luck with the books, uh, book launch, too. Yes, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you for, for ha- allowing me to have this opportunity to, to share with you and the audience that's going to hear this, uh, this podcast. I really do. Before Barbara joins us to discuss events, I want to talk about the newest WestCon podcast. It's called In the Know, and it's hosted by communication professor Jackie Goodsta. Hey, Paul. Yeah. She changed the name to Behind the Curtain. (laughs) All right. It's called Behind the Curtain, and it's hosted by communication professor Jackie Gusta. No matter what it's called, she talks about all the political things the rest of us are scared to discuss on our podcasts, like media bias and the Me Too movement. Actually, we're not afraid to talk about those, but Dr. Gusta goes where the rest of us won't. So tune in to Behind the Curtain. Is that the name? That is. If you want to get educated about contemporary political subjects of the moment. 
I also want to remind our listeners that this podcast comes to you from Western Connecticut State University, offering a high-quality, affordable education. If you have questions about enrolling at WestCon, send an email to admissions at wcsu.edu. And now, here's Barbara. So today we're going to rush right through it because Barbara has a lot of things to do. <laughs> and uh, I realized that she was sending out emails this morning saying, can we do it earlier? Can we do it earlier? And um, I didn't respond. I just, because Pete had, and I didn't think I had to. I was going to be here. <laughs> and so she called me and said, uh, I just wanted to make sure you got the emails. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I got them. And there was a pause, and then I realized she was trying to say, be there on time, damn it. <laughs> and she was just being polite, which I didn't recognize because no one else is polite to me. Yeah, I was just making sure. Because like, <laughs> right. he said that we might be able to get in here, like we can get in at like 11.30 instead. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I just want to make sure, you know, Paul like, heard that or else I'd have to like talk 15 minutes about myself. <laughs> just kidding. We would never start without you. But yeah, I just want to make sure. Uh huh. I figured that out finally. <laughs> so um, we don't need coffee today. We're just going to go into it and uh, hear about what some of the events are today. Yeah. Well, first things first. I have a cactus. Oh yeah, you got a cactus pot. So it's beautiful, and it requires <laughs> no, like little to no maintenance. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the events I talked about last week. Right. Cactus pots. You decorated the pot. Yep. They had stickers. I didn't. I'm not artistic enough to use pens, but I put a lot of stickers on it. And I'm not like, sure I like the acorn one. Yeah, I, I know. We talked about this, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might take the acorn off and replace it with another leaf. Yeah. I have a pumpkin, a leaf, an acorn, and a daisy. And they it's look, beautiful, yeah. They just look and the so cactus beautiful. is very healthy. Yes, the cactus looks so nice. They had lots of different cacti. <laughs> and I told I chose the tall, skinny one. There were short, fat ones, um, chubby ones, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And they were fluffy ones, too, like furry ones. Really? I got, like, a spiky. I just reminded me of SpongeBob for some reason. I don't know. It kind of reminds me of uh, Plankton with Oh, yeah, prickles. it does look. It's, it's a shame it shape like plankton. as Plankton, yeah. It's, it's tiny like Plankton. So, mm-hmm. anyway, that was the event for PAC. And they always do really cool. Um, what are these called again? This kind of event? Uh Novelty? They have a whole, novelties, yes. Novelties, yeah. They always do cool novelties. I have I've decorated my entire office like eight times with their novelties. Were there a lot of people there? Yeah, hmm. I was lucky though, because I was like, I gotta go to a meeting. Can I just like hop in here real quick? I really want to get a cactus. So instead of like taking forever to decorate it, I just stuck four stickers on it. Looks nice. Mm-hmm. It's a minimalist look. Pretty great. <laughs> what else can you do? I can't imagine what else, you know, you couldn't do they go had, too like, crazy. They had, like, mirror stickers, uh, like, that they put all around. They had markers to decorate it. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quick and dirty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay. So, for events, we have. Oh, okay. So, a lot of the events already went by because it was homecoming week. Mm-hmm. My last homecoming week, pretty cool. And you didn't, did you go to homecoming? Um, like over the weekend? Yeah, let's say I did. <laughs> <laughs> you were working, right? Um, actually, I wasn't working. Um, I just, I went hiking. <laughs> so oh, Instead of going to your last homecoming? It's just because like I never see, like Nick never sees his sister. Um, and she, because she lives in Stanford. And like, I really like hanging out with her because I think I've talked about it before. Like she's like so healthy and so like 
just really cool girl. So, like, I was just like, yeah, let's go hiking. Because I, I never go hiking. I let, don't, I, honestly, like, I stopped exercising. Like, I'm just going to turn into a flat blob, a fat blob, <laughs> a flat blob, <laughs> a fat blob, because I literally don't do anything anymore. And, <laughs> and then she's like, oh, let's go hiking. And I was like, oh, God, okay. <laughs> and then we got there. It was so cool. We went to Kent, and we went hiking. And then we went and um, we went to a Korean barbecue place was really really good i've heard that's good yeah. i'd never eaten korean food before and it was amazing and they were genuinely korean like nick was learning korean and he spoke to them in korean no kidding and they were like and they were genuine koreans like usually sometimes like they just like are like americanized or something they kind of like how like like any culture like you have kids here and then they don't learn the language and all that but they were genuinely like i don't know why is korean. nick learning korean he just likes it. He thinks it's a really cool language. It's actually kind of easy to learn. <laughs> um, so he is, like, teaching himself. Wow. Yeah. But he's kind of getting a little discouraged because there's not a lot of people to talk to him. So there's not, like, active practice. So You'll have to learn it, too. Yeah. He, I, we, I started learning it with him. Um, I know, um, I think, wow, it's been a while. So I think, I think that... Saranghai means I love you. And then if you want to say I love you too, you say Jodo Saranghaio. That's all. Sounds good to me. That's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> There's like another whole like phrase that I know that he said that I like, I don't even know what it means. So skip. Is he going to teach you swear words in Korean? <laughs> probably. Mm -hmm. That'd probably be the first thing I'd learn. After the mushy stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So we have uh, the pack trip to Anastasia. The new Broadway musical. Ugh, I have to start doing these things, man. Like, this is so cheap. And I'm graduating, and, like, that means that I can't get this price anymore. <laughs> That's right. It'll be 100 times more. Yeah. So it's only... 30 bucks if you're a student and guests are 85. So I guess I can still come back as a guest. I think that's still cheaper. It is cheaper. But yeah. it's not 100 times cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you want really good seats, it's like 300. So 30. Yeah. Literally. Mm -hmm. Significantly cheaper. But it's uh, Saturday, November 10th, Midtown pickup at 9.30 a.m., Westside pickup 10 a.m., leaving the city at 8 p.m., and you'll have time after the show to explore the city. I'm hmm. guessing they're going to the morning show, which is usually around like 4 or 3. Right. Uh, tickets go on sale Wednesday, October 24th, ha, huh? technically yesterday, uh, at 10 a.m. at the info desk on both campuses. Yeah, I got to start doing this stuff. I actually... So instead of paying ridiculous amounts of money for concert tickets, I should pay, like, moderate amount of money for, right. like, Broadway tickets and stuff with WestCon. Mm-hmm. And make tick Nick pay for his own uh, ticket. <laughs> you're right, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I actually, because the tickets that I just got um, for June, um, he, like, likes the band, but it's, like, my favorite band, so I was just, like, I'll pay for it, like, because uh, I was just, like, paid for it. And he's like, oh, I'll pay you back. And I'm like, no, dude, like, I'm sure you probably don't even want to go. <laughs> but I've That's seen true. this band so many times. It's, like, ridiculous. Um, I, I have, like, their lyric tattooed, like, on my arm. Like, wow. all that stuff. Die hard. Was that a good idea? Yes. It's been three years, and I don't regret it. So. And, and what's I, the name of the band? The 1975. Hmm. I follow them ever since they were, like, really young. Not young, but, like, really, like not popular mm -hmm. um and they just blew up and i was like wow i feel like a lot of people still don't know them because they're kind of like they're alternative like alternative music 
but they just put out like this amazing song. I thought that so at first the song is I'd love it if we make it we made it. And at first like you listen to the song and you think that they're kind of talking about like, you know, like dating, like oh, I'd love it if we made it in the long run. And that's what I thought it was at first. And then you look at the video and it's so crazy. Like it's literally talking about like society. Like <laughs> the lyrics, I literally have an article. I'm not going to like read the article, but it's so cool like what this stuff means. Um, like, there's, like, references to so many, like, hold on, let me just pull it up. So, one of the first things that he's, he sings about is, like, selling melanin and then suffocate the black men, which is, like, he, it's, like, talking about, like, all these societal things that are occurring, like, like, um, basically, like, the hypocrisy of, like, selling melanin or, like, you know, people, like, tanning their skin, all this stuff, while, um, like, the black community are like, like you know, there's racism and they're like prejudice and like mm-hmm. all these things. Um, and then he references like suffocate the black men for what happened, you know, with um, uh, Eric Garner mm-hmm. and like all that. So literally, that's like one line. That's like the third line of the song. And then he also even like quotes Trump saying, um, "Where is it?" Um, I moved on or like a beep, like that's like, that was one of his quotes. And Mm -hmm. then he quotes other things that he says, just like quoting. And if you look at the video, it's so cool. Like he shows like the three-year-old boy that in like the Syrian refugee Mm -hmm. that like was on the beach and everything. And then he says the beach of killing, of drowning three-year-olds, like all these things. It's like insane. Like you think that it's like a random song, but it's actually like has such a message. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a lot of what a lot of his stuff. Anyway, that's nothing to do with events. No, it's very deep. (laughs) And it's uh, you're not just a shallow uh, uh, youth. You're uh, you have uh, you're looking for meaning in life. Yeah. I mean, it's just really cool. Like. And, and a lot, and he doesn't enunciate very well. Like his, like you can't really tell what he's saying unless like you look up the lyrics. Mm-hmm. But after you look at the lyrics like one time, like you're good. Like I remember now. I know like the words now really, if I listen to it. But I don't know. He's from the UK, hmm. um, so he's got like a little bit of an accent, which that's hard to. Yeah, but it he he doesn't. It's like it's like the it's like One Direction. Like you can't even tell that they have an accent like when they sing, hmm. even though they're not a thing anymore. What about, uh, are you going to tell us what lyrics you have on your arm? Oh, <laughs> I feel like we've talked about it before. No. No? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it says, um, it's from their song Falling For You. And it says, on this night and in this light. Because that's like the, it's not the chorus. It's uh, the the hook or something. I don't something know. I don't, I don't know, know the different parts of songs. I don't know. I just know that it plays a lot of times. Um, and it means... Um, not to regret things because on that night and in that light it made you happy hmm. and like i got this yeah i think three years ago now in florida like on a whim for 50 bucks <laughs> i was like <laughs> i want it so it's my first and only tattoo like i'm trying to get more they're really addicting they i've are. like been able to abstain from <laughs> getting them but they're just so good they're just so nice hmm. um yeah so what day is today the 24th I think so. Yes. Haha. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So a lot of the events have passed, but um, I have one coming up. There you go. To talk about it is uh, Crystal Arturi and the Institute for Holistic Health Studies. She's bringing in their annual speaker fundraising speaker. It's Sandra Cindy Blum, who is going to talk about soul surfing through our past lives. 
hypnosis and past life regression therapy. So she does uh, brings people back to their past lives and works them through all their problems that they had then, which supposedly are still um, uh, showing themselves now in your present life. Uh-huh. So once you resolve your past life problems, your current life is all happy. Huh. Uh-huh. That's interesting. She said, uh, Crystal admitted that she's a little bit, um, you know, on the edge for most people's uh, concepts. On the edge? Yeah, most people don't believe in past lives. Oh, yeah. I believe in reincarnation. I do. So, then you do believe in past yeah. lives. Um, that's a really interesting concept, though. I do. I I just think that it makes sense. Um, but that's like a whole idealistic theology kind of thing that we don't have to get into. Um, but it just, that's really interesting. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like it, I don't know. I don't, well, we don't have to get into that, but... It is Monday, November 5th at 7.30 in Ives Concert Hall, and ticket prices are $20. Yeah. So it's uh, cheap compared to 1975. Right. I mean, honestly, it wasn't that cheap. It wasn't that expensive. It's crazy because their ticket prices went up a lot, and then they just went down because they made a point of being like, all right, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't want to make my fans pay, like, so much money. But I just got general admission. Um, cause there's like a tiny pit. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. where I like went. Um, but there's like, it's cause it's at an amphitheater too. So there That's it's cool. all seated and I don't, I don't want to sit down when mm. I'm listening. So I was like, so you're Nick, you're going to go to the general admission with me. You're going to get squished <laughs> by a thousand people, but it's nice. Good and fresh. <laughs> I can see why he's looking forward oh. to it. <laughs> <laughs> he really likes their songs too, though. I mean, like back when we were friends, um, he, well, we're still friends, mm-hmm. but like when we were just friends, um, he would like, he, he totally scammed me, man. Like he was like, so I like love like, um, like theater, right? I like, like the musicals and that sort of thing. Like uh, Les Miserables and like Mamma Mia. And I used to talk about it with him. And he's like, oh yeah, that's awesome. Like I totally love it. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, let's watch this. And he's like, nah. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like you said you liked it. He's like, no, I was totally trying to just get with you. <laughs> and now, now we're good. We're going on three years. And I'm like, yeah. oh, lies fun. based on lies. <laughs> <laughs> No, but um Yeah, the best relationships are based on lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he used to be like, Oh yeah, like um yeah, well like if 'cause they were used to be like really small when I for when we were like back when. Mm-hmm. So he's like, Oh like maybe we can get I'll like pay for them for like your wedding. Cause I was dating this other guy and he was like, Oh, I don't even care, like I'll pay for it for your wedding and I'm like, Yeah, sure, like for wow. some Wow. He was That's some line, huh, Pete? Yeah. Yeah, he's <laughs> Anyway, now it's just like, uh, I can't do that. They're too expensive unless you want to throw down like $200,000 on like a three-hour, two-hour like wedding thing. Right, especially if you're marrying somebody else. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, but the, the he was just like, anyway, yeah. He was just, <laughs> he, he like, we've been, we've known each other for almost six years now. And we've only been dating for two and a half. So all those other years, he wanted to like be my boyfriend. And like, I wasn't about Had it. no idea? No, I knew. I just wasn't into him. <laughs> wow. No. Love that two and a half years later. <laughs> four years later. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. He He's a trooper, man. He's a trooper. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Everything's great now, so. It's good. It's going to be tough when you dump him, though. Stop. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding, Nick. No, yeah. We're going to get married. Hmm. <laughs> No, we have we. No, that's in the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, 
slang of the day. Oh, good. I brought slang today. I don't know. It's not really slang, but it's just something that I say often. Well, I guess, okay, so next week, remind me, we're gonna, I'm going to teach you good and fresh. That's pretty, pretty self-explanatory, but I just say it pretty mm-hmm. often. But this week, we're going to, we're going to, um, it's kind of self-explanatory too, but it's just like kind of like people say, mm-hmm. can't relate. So like, uh, what happened this, like the other day? She, my friend was like, oh, like I got up so early for the gym and like I had my like shake and like all these things. And like, she's like, oh, but I didn't have enough time to like go on the treadmill. Ugh, that sucks. Right. And I'm like, uh, can't relate. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's perfect. So I just say it like to literally everything, like, like anything like good, pretty much that people are like, oh, like I went running today and like, it was kind of cold. Don't you think? And I was like, can't relate. Like, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So I should have, when you called up and said, can you be there on time? I should have said, I oh, can't relate. Yeah. <laughs> or good and plenty. Yeah. <laughs> good and fresh. Good and fresh. Oh, boy, Pete. <laughs> I like good and plenty. They're tasty. Good and I plenty. do, but I don't think she knows what good and plenty is. Is that like a snack? It's yeah, it's a, a little, candy, little yeah. candy-coated licorice pills. Okay. My wife hates them. <laughs> she does grimace, too. <laughs> I like them, too. Yeah. I've never even heard of those. I think it's an old guy thing. <laughs> Uh, Do you know that the, okay, I learned this in a meeting this week. Um, I forget his name. He's the secretary of the student life committee. He's like a professor. Hmm. Uh, the first time I met him, but it was so funny because like, he, um, wait, what time? Okay, because uh, he um, said that like 16 states had Reese's Cups as like their number one candy, but like Connecticut was like mounds. I was like, what? Like, who eats mounds? Oh, I love mounds. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, and, mounds. Uh, the, was it Peter Paul? Was that the yeah. company? That was in Naugatuck. Right. They used to be major. Yeah. I just feel like that could be why. there's mm-hmm. so many other candies. Oh, come on. Mounds? Dark they chocolate and coconut? Good. Come yeah. on, Barbara. I guess I just... I don't know if I'm thinking of the right thing, but mm. I'm thinking of the mounds that I got for Halloween when I was younger, and it was just like a little strip mm-hmm. with like three chocolate balls. Is that what it is? Is it? They, do they come in the little ball size? No, they're like uh, those are. Uh, are like they actually bricks. candy bars? Yeah, they're candy bars. Yeah. Oh, never mind then. I'm thinking of something totally different. Uh, I'm thinking of these like random, like hard, terrible candies that I used to get all chewy. the time. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't like those. So either. they're not mounds. Okay, I gotta try mounds. Is that then. Like sugar babies? Or yeah, something? sugar babies. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, that's what. Ooh. Terrible. Worst childhood experience. <laughs> Who goes to the store? Let me get these chocolate balls for little kids. They taste like sh- like terrible. <laughs> they taste like shoes. <laughs> can't <Sugar>. relate. <laughs> tastes like sugar. They taste like sugar. Yeah, can't relate, literally. Yeah. Good. Can't relate. I'm going to... Is that what it was? Yep, can't okay. relate. Um, I'm going to use it in a sentence. At home and see how it goes. <laughs> or like if you're, like, I don't know if you have, you have kids, Pete? Paul? Yes, a 16-year-old still at home. Girl or boy? Girl. And seven yeah. or eight other kids, right? Yeah, three other kids. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was actually going to say like a girl. I don't know why I thought, I mean, I probably, we probably talked about this before, but if she comes home and she's like, oh, I have so much homework, you're like, can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> she already doesn't speak to me when she comes home, so it'll be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Drive her away even yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> can't relate. Hot. <laughs> you can also work with bad things, too. Yeah. You're so embarrassing, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll come home the next day and be like, oh. Um, she'll be like, oh, like, I made food today. Like, oh, that's good and fresh. 
or like it's kind of good. I guess I could just say good and fresh today too. Um, it's kind of like pretty much good. Like every like so, it can be used like sarcastically. Mm. Like if someone's like, I don't know. Let me think of a scenario. It's like something kind of crappy, like like today for our meeting or something like. Um, like how we couldn't get in here earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I could be like, oh, that's good and fresh. Like, cool. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> but also in a good way, you could be like, oh, your clothes are so good. And f-. Like, I don't even know. It's kind of tough. I don't really use good and fresh all that often. I just hear it a lot. So I kind of have to like think about the context. I'll get back to you next it's week. It's got to be spontaneous. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we'll exactly. do it next week. Pete, we were walking, Barbara and I were walking out of the building two weeks ago. Oops. And we saw, um, we walked past this young woman student, and I didn't you know, notice her. Barbara, like as we're walking by, says, I love your pants. <laughs> you say she could have said, hey, those are good and fresh, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah you're right. Yeah. Hmm. That works. It's kind of tough because it's like it's not like an adjective. Like it's not – but it's like – it's just like weird. Like you just got to feel it out. Hmm. <laughs> you got to just know Try when to on. say it. Yeah. This this YouTuber named James Charles, I think he's the one that like started it. Um, he's like a makeup guru. He's the first cover girl, cover boy, I guess. Um, but first guy on Cover Girl magazine. Hmm. Really? Yeah, and he like says it all the time. I think he has like merch with like Good and Fresh on it. Um, so I think that's why I hear it so often because I watch a lot of his makeup videos, even though I didn't even wow I didn't even put on makeup today. Anyway, yeah, those are the events that I have. Pete, we need to get merch on our for our podcast. Sure, that would be so cool. That would just till December, though. Pete and, and Paul and Barb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's we'll work on that. I mean, if if you want like a grad student, like a graduate student, to come <laughs> yeah. back, like I can find time. Aren't you going to be in the National Guard? Ugh, I don't know. The program has opened up. Driving a tank, yet. right? What? Driving you a tank. You're going to be driving a tank? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I actually just looked up, like, LSAT courses and stuff at Fairfield University that I'll be taking starting in February. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. It's February to March, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 6 to 10 p.m. at night. And then after that, I have to take the LSAT. Aren't you working those days? Yes, but since I won't have class anymore, hmm. I can move around my schedule. Hmm. So that'll be nice. That'll be good and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> These are great. I can't wait to start saying them. Yeah. Or like <laughs> when people come, up, yeah. people come up to me and they're like, oh, like I have so much free time. Like I don't know what to do. Like I'm just so bored all the time. Or like because Nick has so much free time in the mornings. He's like, ugh, like I feel so bored. And I'm like, can't relate, dude. Like, <laughs> Yeah, especially a day like today, a Wednesday. Oh, Wednesdays suck. <laughs> <laughs> but. Are you going to see a doctor today? No. Oh, good. I have my next appointment is in November because I have cavities. Yeah. Um, Ugh. Can't many. relate. <laughs> there you go. Very good, Pete. <laughs> All right. All right, so we're good. Yes. You can go off to your next meeting. Yes. Thank you, Barbara. We'll <laughs> see you, you next week. All right, see you next week. All right. Thank you, as always, to engineer Pete Puccio and producer Scott Volpe, who make WCSU 411 possible. When you find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, Please subscribe so you can keep up with all the news about Westcon. After you subscribe, give us a five-star review and leave a comment. You can also reach us on Twitter at WCSU411. For Barbara Viegas, this is Paul Steinmetz. See you on the next edition of WCSU411.